0: The Nonprofit Hour, a weekly look at Portland's nonprofits and do-gooders with interviews, profiles, and documentaries.
1: You're listening to the Nonprofit Hour on X-ray.fm, brought to you by the Media Institute for Social Change, a public interest media lab that works to inspire, empower, and engage emerging media producers. I'm Henry Leisha. This week, we take a look at two farms that are teaching children hands-on lessons about environmental science and agriculture while building life skills. First, we'll hear from Kayla Catino and Adam McKinley from Gearcrest Farm and Historical Society. The farm has been passed down through five generations of the Gear family, a prominent family in Oregon's state history. Today, the GEARS are focused on preserving the farm and the agrarian lifestyle that has existed there. The site now serves as a nonprofit that immerses children in farm life and aims to build leadership skills through meaningful work. Next, we will hear from Elizabeth Schmitz, the Executive Director of Savi Island Center. Her organization works to help children understand the connection between the food they eat, farming, and the land. Their hands-on farm-based curriculum was developed through a partnership between farmers, educators, and culinary professionals. For more on these farms, we turn to our host, Phil Bussey. This is Phil Bussy.
0: It's the Nonprofit Hour. I am joined in the studio today, uh, two people from Ge- Greer, Gear Gear Gear
2: Gearcrest Farm,
0: Gearcrest Farm and Historical Society. Uh, Kayla. Katino is the site director, and Adam McKinley is the educational coordinator and land steward. Mm-hmm. Thank you both for coming in. Thanks,
3: Thanks so much Dad. for having us.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, so you guys are. Um, let's 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 start all the way back because it feels like that's appropriate mm-hmm. for historical society. Um, this is really the history of Oregon is here, right? Mm-hmm. Ralph and Mary Gear arrived in the Willamette Valley in eighteen forty eight. Six hundred forty acres. Mm-hmm. I mean, a huge. Land grant at the time, which is
2: one square mile.
0: One square mile, and I mean, and this is this is all happening before Oregon's even a state. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, who were they? Why why did they come to Oregon?
3: Well, uh, they had uh, had other family members come uh, across in in eighteen forty five, I believe, and sent a letter back to Illinois saying, "This is truly." Amazing country. You should totally come on out. Um, And so they packed up, and a few years later, uh, they made it in late 1847, but weren't able to find a place to to settle that that first winter. So they buckled down, got a a big bag of flour, and um, had pancakes all winter. And
0: And we're probably live-tweeting the whole thing, Yeah, right.
3: (laughs) (laughs) And uh, and we're all the time searching, uh, uh, talking to people, searching around. And um, we're finally able to find a place that actually had already been claimed, but um, you know another thing, 1848 was the was the gold rush, and so that a settler um, was uh, ripe to head down to California to find his fortune, and um, so he was w- willing to sell his rights to the land to the Gears.
0: And and it's fascinating, like what how much of that history still plays out today. That idea of I mean I hate to be uh, stereotyping Californians, but like rushing down for the gold, whereas the Oregonians <laughs> are like settling in for the for the long haul.
3: Yeah, and and you know these were uh, entrepreneurial folks. They they had come across with a, a wagon full of live fruit trees that um, they were nursery people, and those trees actually got washed away crossing a, a river. So they but they were able to bring a bag of of apple seeds and a bag of pear seeds, and immediately. That first winter, uh, started planting out their nursery, even though they hadn't found a place to be. So they transferred all those trees to the new, the new homestead, and uh, were uh, very successful in creating a nursery business from the very get go.
0: So place this on the map for me. Where where exactly are we talking?
3: I'm talking about uh, forty or
2: um, S- Silverton, Oregon. It's about forty miles south of Portland. Um, ever been to? Silverton, the Oregon Garden is there, uh, Silver Falls State Park. It's in the area of the Waldo Hills that we call it. That when the Gears came over too, they had Ralph and Mary and they had four children. I think the youngest was two. <laughs> and they all they all made it over. Yeah.
0: And, and and really then I mean the Gear family then has been intertwined with the state history. And and all of this we're talking about to lead up to what you guys are doing now, but uh, L.B. Gere, he was a state commissioner uh, in 1900. Uh, uh, Theodore Thurston Gear, such a great name. Yeah. First native-born governor of Oregon. Uh, Musa Gere. Am I Musa. Musa. She was uh, first woman to climb Mount Jefferson with a small group of uh, female American entrepreneurs at the time. Uh, it's just, it's a really you can trace the entire history of this region through this family which is very exciting mm-hmm. yeah. and and now uh, the family history has inspired the idea to create a place mm-hmm. uh, and i'm and i'm lifting from your organization's word uh, by pursuing their dreams help shape our nation mm-hmm.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: what is what does that mean in practical day-to-day terms
3: gosh well i think uh, we can find a lot of inspiration looking back at uh, just the persistence and the and the, the drive um, that these people um, uh, uh, in pursuing their dreams, and um, in in a very land-based way, you know the Gears, uh, they're all uh, passionate about some uh, 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 part of the land or another, whether it be um, pears and pear cider or horses. Um, they they were very entrepreneurial folks and. Um, or involved with politics at the same time and involved in their community. So I think it's a, you know, experiencing it firsthand uh, by coming to the land is an amazing way of, of uh, feeling, a, a, not only seeing a lens for, for all of our heritage um, and the land based roots that we, we all come from.
0: Um, and so you guys bring school groups in. Is that part of t- Tell me what happens on a day to day basis at uh, Gearcrest Farm and Historical Society.
2: Oh, well, about ten years ago, we became a nonprofit organization to preserve the historic homestead, but also offer these farm life immersion programs. And that is preserving our historic lifestyle and preserving that land land based way of life, um, which is a way to preserve our our history, the gear history, and. Um, a history of of connecting to the land. So when you come to Gearcrest, you experience what what it's like to live off the land, what it's like to live in a sustainable community in a homestead. What I really love about it is how it relates to all abilities and all people we all need to eat to survive right So we, We are all working together in a community to make sure our needs are met. We are feeding the animals before we feed ourselves, teaching that aspect that we need to serve in order to be fulfilled ourselves. We all share meals together. That family aspect is really important to us. That's a very strong value that that family and that community family is really one of the strongest values that we have in society. So when you come, you really are a part of our family and sharing meals as a family is one of the strongest um, ways to to build that family. So breakfast, lunch, and dinner, we all take turns preparing it. When people come, guests are invited to join in that food uh, food preparation because it's one of the greatest parts of being on the farm. Nature doesn't need farms, people do. And then, in the afternoon is more of that that downtime where that that slower pace, and that's where we will focus more on traditional crafts, and that's what that natural land based rhythm do that's a timeless tradition that that humans have been doing for centuries, so teaching self-reliant skills of not only where our food comes from but where things where things that we need for life come from. So we'll teach wool working, basket weaving, herbal medicine, um, those type of things in the afternoon.
0: And who's coming here? Who's coming there?
3: Well, there's a, a predominantly school groups uh, of up to 35, 45 children uh, or youth at a time. Uh, that's our our principal uh, uh, clientele at this point. So uh, a teacher will... will Communicate with us, uh, and uh, they'll come out for either a day trip, uh, like a four-hour day trip, or uh, up to a week uh, of overnight stay.
0: A week's and, a long time. Can you talk about some of the students, or even a specific student that came there, was there for a full week, and you could see that transformation?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, one one story that just really sticks in my mind on a day to day was we often have a. a, a Group of ninth graders uh, for a practicum experience from uh, from uh, Portland uh, Waldorf School, and uh, there was one particular boy that uh, from the very get go, it felt very much like he was out of his element, and uh, was very uh, much steeped in an academic world. Um, and by the end, uh, you know, his mom accidentally came early, and she was present for the kind of the closing circle of sharing. And um, they had this group, a small group of students had had uh, a really physical, exp- uh, probably more than any other group. They'd done a lot of different work together on the land, um, and um, by the end, he got the experience of of uh, his mom coming and being in that circle and really opening up and being like, "Oh my gosh, you know, seeing you again has made me realize." Um uh, and appreciate for the, maybe the first time how much work you do to maintain us as a family maintain our household, and I'm finally ready to be more involved in in all of that and finally really realize what i'm I'm capable of in a in a tangible way you know he was obviously very intelligent, very capable, but had that sort of lost feeling that I think a lot of our students have in um being so steeped in the intangible, um, so there's a real power in, in um, learning and being involved, especially in in a family environment, which we nurture, and really showing people what they're
0: capable of. And it must be a, a, a lifestyle change. I mean, even if just for four hours or for a day, I mean that that this is far more than a petting farm.
3: Yeah, yeah. You know, that's you know, from the very get go, we're welcoming people into our uh, connection to the land and and yeah from the very get-go it's a it's sort of a timeless experience and um, uh, and energizing for a lot of people to wake up with the sun and start to reattune to uh, a, a na- more nature-connected rhythm. Uh,
2: I mean it's different but I want to add that it's it's what humans have been doing for centuries it's something that we're all connected with and we might be feeding that in different ways and need need that uh, in different ways but um, it's not a new way of living it's a different culture than mainstream society but it is based in our roots and in who we are as humans we need to connect we need to eat we need, we are connected to the land we are connected to each other so it's really uh, that's what we just want to provide people with that experience to reconnect again.
0: But isn't Facebook for connecting? <laughs> I mean, we I to... <laughs> are on
2: Facebook, too, and Instagram.
0: <laughs> I mean, I, I imagine that that is part of the culture that you guys uh, go against or or have to counterbalance somewhat, that, that kids are coming in and they're a generation that does have a lot of screen time and a lot of their community is based on those mm-hmm. connections and do you find that that is uh, an attitude that the kids are coming in with and that you uh, shift them away from or give them an alternative to? You know, it
3: depends on the length of stay. I mean, Kayla might have, have some other perspectives on this, but I, I think that you typically, children children are so excited about being there and, then, and engaged from dawn to dusk, really, that I, I don't even think they, they miss it, really. <laughs> But, uh, you know, for those students that are there for maybe a longer period of time or those that are a bit more mature uh, or in high school age, um, it does take a little bit more discipline. And I feel like, uh, you know, we're not trying to repattern or anything. I think it's um, trying to provide an inspiring experience that they can come back to their technology um, in a way that um, feels more helpful, perhaps, mm. and, and more inspiring. So.
2: Yeah. I want to kind of I want to quote our mission here, which is to nurture personal growth and learning through immersion in farm life, nature, and local history. So it's um, not I don't see it as a challenge. We're nurturing personal growth and learning. And we're not saying that everyone should be farmers or work on a farm, but we want to provide them experience that, that could nurture that that growth and learning in their lives and how they relate to the world and how they relate to themselves and and build that self re, um self identity and self-reliance and how to serve community and how to help be leaders in creating sustainable community. And I don't think we have to yeah, fight uh fight the culture. I one of my big proponents are why I'm so interested in farm life, too, is that meaningful work aspect. And I think children are eager for meaningful work. And right now in our society, we we want to preserve childhood. But that has almost come full swing the other way and that we want to preserve it so much. But we're not giving children work that they are capable of and that fulfills them and a lot of the programs that come are 8-year-olds which is a really interesting there are a lot of children that come in third grade 8 year 8 at 8 years of age and it's amazing how engaged and interested in the work they want to work they have a desire to work and be a part of that so i meaningful work is i think really important at, at all ages
0: I, I have a eight nine year old and she has declared that she wants to be a farmer. Uh, we we have had to explain that she does have to get up before eight AM and can't wear pajamas all day though. So she is she's working on the cultural challenges. Well she uh,
2: should come to camp this summer, Phil.
0: We will get her we will look into it. It's the nonprofit hour on X ray FM. I am talking with uh, Adam McKinley, who is the education coordinator and land steward for GearCrest farm and historical society and kayla katina who is the site director uh the farm is located near silverton and and uh, brings students from corvallis eugene from portland down and uh reconnects with a a sense of place a sense of purpose um talk to me about this i mean i i imagine you're you're there's chickens there's fresh eggs uh are you are the students slaughtering animals (laughs)
2: <laughs> That's a good question The students aren't <laughs> Yeah Well, I'll, Adam, it, you should talk about it. It's
3: definitely a question that, that comes up quite a bit But, you know, first off, uh, I'll talk about um, the, the farm We're on 20 acres now, which is um, And, and it's a really diverse one uh, A couple year-round creeks and forest and, uh, and about six, seven acres of pasture And about half acre of gardens So it's a really uh, a lovely uh, very diverse site um, and the, yeah the kids or are, 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 are youth are involved in all aspects of the of the farm. A uh, little goat dairy is kind of the, the nucleus of the farm uh, so we're, we'll milk goats every day and for those coming for smaller groups uh, experiences like summer camps they're actually able to learn how to milk um, uh, for larger groups that's not very practical for, for these animals but they do get to experience it and, and, and um, witness it in our relationship with the animals. Yeah, we have chickens, we have ducks, um, a fiber flock of sheep uh, that are shorn every spring. And we get to work with their wool, uh, uh, with the children. And uh, a couple of horses that are uh, carry another uh, part of the gear history on the land. And um, what else? We've got lots of barn cats and, and things as well, so... <laughs>
2: Well, I want to talk about the farm animals and to uh, answer your question about the, the slaughtering. So we do have the goat dairy and we do raise some animals for meat. And that is always just a really good lesson for or experience for children who might eat meat but are very disconnected from that relating meat to uh to a live animal and i don't want to get too political in this but why i'm so passionate about gearcrest farm too is the way that we humanely treat our animals and those lessons in loving and serving animals but also them that circle of life in that in that human's Adam would be able to talk more about this better than I can. But it is is a, it is a lesson in learning how we are all related in that circle of life and mm-hmm. how we are connected to animals. Yeah. And it, it can be hard lessons for some kids and but it's a really good learning opportunity. Mm-hmm. And we like having that conversation.
0: Have you had students go through the program and at the end declare their vegetarianism? Absolutely. Yes.
3: Yeah. And, and, you know, at, at first it, it perhaps bothered me a little bit, but I love it now, you know, they're, um, they're learning how to really connect with their heart. They're, they're learning. Um, and that inquiry is going to, uh, uh, really live with them. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I was vegetarian for over a decade, but it was that connection to the, the animals that I was missing. Mm-hmm. And I realized that, when that was developed, then I felt I could. Um, I uh, I got to know that relationship that we that ancient relationship that we have w- mm. with those creatures, and um, and take con- take more control over my r- relationship with food. So, I think that's that's a process that we see with the children when they make those connections between the garden and the salad bowl, um, and um, and all of the work. That it takes to to love and care for these animals um, and uh, I think brings some awareness although they probably don't aren't able to understand it sometimes at at a young age, but um the level of disconnection mm. um, and uh, um, and the the true emotional richness that it that uh, is is present there if if we if we uh, choose in all the food that we we take in, and all the food that 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 we that we care for. So,
0: I want to change context just a little bit and talk yeah. about. Uh, this is the nonprofit hours. So let's talk about some of the organizational questions here. So, ten years ago, uh, the family decided to make this a nonprofit and mm-hmm. to s- shift the purpose. Is that is that the talk? Talk to me about the origin story.
2: Yeah. So, more about the well, the history. It's the oldest homestead or frame built house that's still owned by the same family in the state of Oregon so the owners still live on property they uh, bought the farm from the current owner's aunt in 1999 and she was she was gifted the farm it had gone down through families and they bought it from her and she said keep it in the family so they the way that they are keeping it in the family is they established a nonprofit that will forever preserve that um, the historical significance of the place. So in 2007, they um, created a nonprofit to preserve the homestead.
3: The farm, you know, like many American farms, has encountered this issue of of, um, of passing it on. And um, while the family is, is interested in seeing its heritage preserved and um, the farm preserved, uh, you know, few of, of us in the modern society are willing to go through the work of, of taking on uh, all of the work that it takes to, to, uh, to maintain a, not only a house, um, but 20 acres of property. So the farm will stay in the family and stay in that ownership, however the nonprofit is uh, set up to really maintain that intergenerational uh, 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 support of the farm and the management of, of the animals.
0: Yeah, I mean that that is a very uh, keen problem, the problem of, of farms staying part of Oregon's culture and economy. Yeah. Uh, Oregon State about a month ago came out with a report about the aging of Oregon farmers, and I and I and I'm forgetting exactly, but I think the average age is about sixty five now. Yeah. yeah. And there's not necessarily uh, a generation that's going to come in and replace that. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's you guys seem to be at the crossroads. Uh, Gearcrest Farm seems to be at the crossroads. That idea of this is why uh, Oregon was settled mm-hmm. uh, for its farmland. Yeah. Uh, yet this is what is uh, quickly vanishing. Mm-hmm. And so it's 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 exciting to be there, and it's exciting, hopefully, that you're inspiring perhaps some future farmers.
3: We hope we definitely hope so. And uh, like we said, you know, that's not uh, that can't be our intention. Uh, however, we, we 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 intend to provide as much leadership experience as we can for uh, for uh, adolescents um, in empowering them to really master uh, different aspects of, of, of the homestead farm, which they can really take to whatever scale they choose. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but uh, yeah, I think it's more of, of giving that connection. To, I you know I didn't even know it was honestly a profession until I was through with college. It wasn't even my, on my radar. Even though we had a garden at home, I had no idea the joy of uh, of of maintaining a diversified um, farm operation. And I think that uh, that's a, a real disservice to our younger generation. And they get to miss, they're missing out on a, an amazing uh, profession that I think is really still marginalized even though we're in such a, a rich and foodie um, hmm. a culture right now
0: Adam talk a little bit you 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 grew up here in Oregon
3: yeah I grew up in South Portland and was lucky enough to uh, even be in a in a small alternative school until eighth grade and running amok in the woods um, and then going to a public high school um, and I'm lucky enough was was uh, really turned on by science and and um passionate about uh about plants uh and uh but not really knowing where that was going to take me so uh, it took me through college and um and a great passion for the outdoors and then taking a an ecology class uh, focused on agriculture it just something switched and i was like gosh this is this is what i'm this is what i'm made to do so uh, and immediately followed that uh, pursuit out to um
0: to, to small-scale agriculture, and and you've worked in Colorado, you've worked mm-hmm. in Hawaii. <clears throat> yeah, what brought you back to Oregon?
3: I think you know, really as the family connection, uh, being closer to my parents, and and that sense of home here in the Willamette Valley. Um, and uh, I was looking, I think, also for for um, not just a, a a production farm experience, but uh, to a more holistic uh, uh, opportunity that really engages community, and I can have thought of
0: a, a better place, really. And Kayla, you were born and raised in Pennsylvania. Yes. Um,
2: <laughs> my heart has always been in Oregon, though. <laughs>
0: uh, how so? <laughs> what well, did you know about Oregon growing up?
2: My, I visited Oregon as a kid, and my mom's heart was always here, and her best friend growing up lives down in Roseburg, so I, who I call my aunt so I felt like I always had family connections there, but I studied music therapy in college and worked specifically with children with special needs, and I minored in psychology and nonprofit leadership. After college, I I did well in the academic career, but really just wanted to get my hands dirty and take time, that typical thing of taking a year off after college to go travel and explore which which is what I did I traveled down the uh, the east coast and then bought a one-way ticket to Oregon just cuz I wanted to work on a farm my mom calls it the pioneer dream that's still alive that desire to move out west to a farm so I actually came as an intern to Gearcrest Farm about 5 years ago
0: and how did you know about them
2: I Came to Gearcrest as a woofer, which stands for Worldwide Opportunities on Organic Farms. That's just one venue. There's other agricultural venues that we now search for um, that we get our interns through, but it is connecting willing workers to learn farming for room and board, which is what woofer originally was. Um, it's it's worldwide and there's there's a few of these organizations that that connect people interested in learning. So that's how I came. I filled a homemaker position that I really um, was drawn to farming, but also I'm drawn to that that nurturing aspect of the family is really the hub of the farm. and when uh, systematic um, and Inclusive family is, and that community is really at the heart. The farm family, even currently, is at the heart of of what the farm does. Like I said before, nature doesn't need farms; people do. So holding that people space, that homemaker position, or holding that is really critical in um, in a small homestead. So I came to fill that, but moved up into some other roles in the organization. Was the education coordinator for a while. And then moved away for two years and always thought about Oregon and was offered a job back here about two years ago.
0: And your bio says that you, lo- you love to make pies. Anything in particular? Well,
2: I'm going to shout out to my Pennsylvania roots here. One of my favorite pies that I love making is fly pie. Have you ever heard of it?
0: I, I, I know the song. <laughs>
2: it is a song. She fly pie, also called molasses pie. So there's no sugar in it. It's like a custard, but it's got molasses. I like to put honey and sorghum and some other sweeteners in there and a crumble top. So it's almost like a coffee cake. Coffee cake. It's really satisfying. It's a Pennsylvania Dutch pie that I grew up on.
0: Sounds fantastic. <laughs> um I, let's just. I I want to just sort of wrap up the this conversation. But um, you you went to school. You said Kayla for uh, non profit management. What's weird or unique or different about Gearcrest Farm and the management of that non profit?
2: I think what's it's it's so unique in that why I love this non profit too is that it you know. Nonprofits are set up to provide a specific need, a social service need. What's unique about Gearcrest Farm is that it serves education. It serves environmental stewardship. It serves um, uh, creative arts. There's a arts and crafts component. It's a historic site. So it's got that historic perspective. So it's not just one area of humanity that we're serving, but it's this it's this whole intricate um, whole whole piece that that brings all of those aspects together. And I think farms are adaptable to are able to serve all of those aspects. Um, of of humanity and and serving um, having that holistic view. but that's also a challenge because it, it is it is a culture that that we are preserving just at being on a farm too. So not only do we have our programs like a nonprofit specializing in the programs and fundraising, but we're also operating a homestead. So there's many, it's it's very unique in the many capacities that it is it is running.
0: Kayla Catino and Adam McKinley both are from work with Gearcrest Farm and Historical Society. Thank you both for the work you guys are doing and for coming in. Yeah, so thank
2: you. There.
1: Fly, pie, this show is, is made possible with generous support from Chinook Book, whose mobile app rewards your sustainable lifestyle choices fly, with sweet pie, savings at hundreds of neighborhood businesses near you. Use it for tonight's dinner or your next adventure. Download fly, the app free at chinookbook.com.
4: And and heavens are cloudy shoe fly pie And apple pan dowdy I never get enough Of that wonderful stuff Mama When you bake Mama I don't want cake Mama For my sake to the oven and make some ever loving. shoo shoo fly by. an apple pan, daddy makes your eyes light up, your Tommy say howdy, shoo fly by an apple pan, daddy, I never get enough of that wonderful stuff. Fly by, and apple, apple, apple pan, Doughty makes the you sun come fly, out fly, When heavens are cloudy, Shoot fly by, and apple, apple pan, Doughty, I never get enough Of that wonderful star. Mama, when you start to bathe, I don't want no cake. Mama, mama, for myself, Shoo, shoo, fly, pie And apple pan, drowdy Makes your eyes light up Your tummy say, howdy Shoo, fly, pie And apple pan, drowdy I never get enough of that wonderful stuff Shoo, shoo, fly, shoo, pie, pie Apple pan, pie, Makes your eyes light up light Your tummy up, say, light howdy Shoo, shoo, pie, pie. I never get enough of that
0: wonderful This is the nonprofit hour on X-ray FM. We are joined today by Elizabeth Schmitz, who is the newish new executive director for Soviet Island Center. How are you doing?
5: I'm great. Thank you so much for having me here today.
0: Absolutely. And 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 welcome to your new job. Uh, we're gonna talk both about the job, but let's start with I think everybody knows Sovie Island, but what is Sovie Island Center?
5: The Soviet Island Center is a nonprofit that was established back in 2005, and it's our mission to connect kids to food, farming, and the land.
0: All important things. Absolutely. <laughs> and and how do you connect kids to food, farming, and the lands? I mean, school buses come out there, and they uh, the kids learn about school gardens and about eating uh, how, how, how does this work what's what's the mission or what's the process
5: sure so our organization is in part made really cool because of the partnerships that we have so we work really closely with sovi island organic which is a for-profit farm that um, leases 18 acres from howell territorial park which is run by metro regional government So if you're not familiar with Metro, they run a number of parks in the area, including Howell Territorial Park. They lease that land to Soviet Island Organics, and they use the land to produce food, which they sell to community-supported agriculture subscribers. They sell food to restaurants, and they sell food to local grocery stores. And so they are generous enough to share their space with us so that we can get school groups out there. Um, We try to serve a majority of title one schools which means they're high poverty schools so more than 50 percent of our schools are coming from areas where students are in high poverty um, levels and that's really important to us because we want to um, expose children um, from all over portland to what it is like to taste fresh food on a farm um, to how food grows and to connect to a natural and wild place. So they do come out in school buses usually. Um, sometimes they come out in caravans of cars with their parents. Transportation can be sometimes a limiting factor for school field trips. So we do try to provide scholarships where we can, and we waive all of our registration fees for those Title One schools.
0: Yeah, and I want to talk a little bit more about those Title One schools because, I mean, that that is... An uh, important part, and not always one that's acknowledged about what's going on in Portland. Portland has some pretty wide-reaching, uh, low-income populations. Um, can you talk about just some of how does that fit into nutrition and connection to food? How is What is the a, a connection there?
5: There have been many research studies that show that oftentimes high poverty areas also are um, food deserts and by food deserts i mean places where it's difficult to access fresh fruits veggies healthier food choices oftentimes in high poverty areas the main source of food for families will be a corner store where you can really only access sugary foods high fat foods highly processed foods and if there are fruits and veggies available they're oftentimes not very fresh or delicious So for us, we know, again, because of research, that when children are exposed from a young age to healthy food options, and especially when children are encouraged and allowed to be part of growing food from a young age, um, they're more likely to want to taste food that they grow. They're more likely to try foods again if they've tasted them before. Um, and they're more likely to like them if they are able to taste them in a um, when they're really fresh. So part of what we're trying to do is encourage children to develop a broader food palette so that they will actually want to eat fruits and vegetables. Um, when the farm to school movement started, schools were encouraged to and began serving more fruits and vegetables and waste went up. And so that was not the intention of the farm to school movement. So what we think we're doing, in part, is helping students develop that taste for veggies and that palate and willingness to try new foods so that they'll eat more fruits and vegetables.
0: But, but, but surely you have some students that show up there and they're just like, ooh, a carrot comes out of the dirt?
5: Sure, <laughs> absolutely. But... You wouldn't believe when they first get there. Um, it's been very muddy this season so far, and they don't want to change their shoes. They don't want to put on rain jackets. Um, we strongly encourage them to put on some rain boots, and they get out there and start stomping around in the mud, and they are having so much fun just playing in puddles. These are oftentimes children who um, this is their only chance as part of the school year to go outside, and um and so, when it gets to the part of the field trip where they're tasting vegetables, which is actually in two of our three lessons in the spring and the fall, um, they're really excited to taste those foods.
0: And and uh, talk a little bit more about that because there also has to be uh, some of these some of these uh, kids are coming from I assume East Portland or uh, maybe areas that don't have as much outdoor space mm-hmm. and aren't spending as much. I, you said they're all excited to to come and splash in the puddles but it's also has to just be a soviet island may be a new territory for them
5: yeah absolutely i i grew up in southeast portland and i went to soviet island a couple times um i maybe once to go look at pumpkins and so or get pumpkins out of the pumpkin patch and i think it is a new territory for them um, what we really hope to foster for them out there is a sense of connecting to that place but also a sense of having a really positive experience in the outdoors so that they will feel more comfortable going outdoors again in the future. Um, even if it's their own backyard, even if it's their own front stoop, if it's a local park, having that positive experience is shown to um, create a willingness in, in youth to go outside again.
0: And, and because I know that you most likely or well, have written grants and I've had to talk about studies. Can we talk about some of those and some of some of the results that uh, you know or that you hope that you're bringing about?
5: Sure. Yep. The the youth again who are engaged in gardening from a young age, as we've talked about a little bit already, are much more likely to make healthier eating choices in the future. So that in itself is a really big boon to nutrition and also. Um, The more children are choosing to eat fruits and vegetables instead of uh, foods that are less healthy, the better our um, impact on reducing childhood obesity will be. Childhood obesity rates have significantly increased over the past couple of decades. Um, So healthy eating choices are really important. But also, they're getting outside and they're being active. They're running around. They're stooping. They're helping to plant plants. And encouraging that kind of active lifestyle style is also really important for reducing childhood obesity rates. Um, the studies also show, again, going back to sense of place, that if children have positive experiences and connect to a place in nature, whether it's uh, simp- as simple as a tree that they know and love um, or as complex as a major park or a place like Sovie Island, um, those children are more likely to become good stewards of our environment. So having children develop that sense of place and connecting to their local landscape can have significant results in the long term for how we in Portland or how they as individuals choose to um, engage in their everyday behavior. So children who have a strong sense of place are less likely to litter they're more likely to conserve water. They're more likely to take personal actions that are less harmful to the environment. So I think that's a really important thing that we do as well.
0: This is the Nonprofit Hour on X-Ray FM. This is Phil Bussey. I am talking with Elizabeth Schmitz, who is executive director for Soviet Ion Center. So you're, you're two months at the job, couple months into the job. Yeah. Easy as pie?
5: It's full of challenges, of course. Starting a new job is always a steep learning curve, and my background is strong in the field of environmental ed. I have about almost 20 years in the field, um, starting from teaching at outdoor school and working in AmeriCorps at Metro, all the way um, to being an executive director of a state agency in Kentucky. So. I have a breadth of knowledge, um, and now I'm working to strengthen my depth of knowledge of the Soviet Island Center and all of the logistics of running a small nonprofit.
0: Yeah, let's, let's, let's unpack some of that. So you started in the field. You, you took an urban farm course uh, in U of O in 1997, yep. is that right? Yep. I, what, I, that, what is that? What is an urban farm course?
5: So I was always really excited about going outside. I grew up hunting uh, or not hunting. I grew up camping um, with my dad all over Oregon and um, loved being outside. But we had a rose garden in our backyard. We didn't grow food. And growing food was something that was very remote to me as a child. And it wasn't until I took this urban farm class at the University of Oregon that I realized that we can all grow food. So the urban farm class was a small, maybe half acre plot just adjacent to the University of Oregon campus where we learned how to grow food, how to make compost. We learned about all types of different foods that can be grown in Oregon and built small scale um, hoop houses so that we could extend our growing season. Hoop houses are basically just little plastic covers that allow us to um grow food when it's freezing outside. Um, And it was because of that course that I realized how, um, how empowering it was to be able to grow your own food. And that led me to really a lifetime of um, activism on the food spectrum, even though most of what I've done in the world of food has been in my personal life as opposed to my professional life. It's something that's been near and dear to my heart ever since.
0: So what what do you think you said in the interview that convinced them you were the right person?
5: <laughs> um, I I am not sure exactly. Hopefully, a lot of great things. But I think my passion for organic agriculture and connecting youth to the land and to food uh, did come through in my interview.
0: And and now now that you're in executive director position, this is uh, that that. I assume entails some fundraising. Absolutely. Uh, is that something that you're excited about?
5: Sure. yep. I think it's um, it's always exciting to find individuals and businesses and foundations that support the work that we do and to align ourselves with common goals.
0: Yeah and, and, um, and talk to me a little bit about um, the staff that you have out there. I mean so you, it's not a huge staff that's running a large program. How does how does that work?
5: Right, we have one almost full time person, and the rest of us are all part time on some scale. So we hire seasonal educators in the spring and the summer and the fall. But our so we have five staff total, including me. And three of those are educators, one of those is our uh, marketing and developing director development director and um, the rest of our educational lessons are actually delivered by volunteers so we have a really strong volunteer base and our education program manager trains our volunteers in best practices in working with youth in an out-of-door setting um, which can be a challenge and then we teach our volunteers what the lessons are and they take small groups of children out into the field
0: and, and um, so so how much of this is about uh, digging in the dirt and how much of this is about how much of this is about education? How much of this is this about farming?
5: It's all about education okay. um, and our lessons when our co-founders who are Corey Schreiber, who's a pretty well known chef in Portland and Sherry Rader, who runs the farm out there, started this nonprofit. They had been getting a lot of requests for tours. And so they realized that we had an opportunity to depth, to deepen the knowledge of our, and the experience of our students who came out there. So um, this is all about experiential, hands-on learning of science. Everything that we teach has been aligned to the new science standard, standards, the next generation science, science standards. Um, and it's all about helping students have a – a tactile experience with science so um, one of our one of our teachers who has been out there in the past Sam Leach said um, dirty fingernails equal authentic learning so it is all about farming um, but it is also all about science
0: and, and um, how prepared are you finding the students that come out there are for, for those lessons at this point
5: They, um, it depends. So we teach pre-K through fifth grade out there. Our lessons are primarily targeted at third grade. And so for the most part, they are willing and ready to learn. Um, We have some grants that are allowing us to come out to the schools in the winter before they visit us in the spring. And so when we're able to get out to the classrooms before the students come out to the farm, of course, they're better prepared and have been um, delivered some key information that helps them connect what they're hearing in the classroom to what they're hearing in the farm. We're also getting ready to launch a teacher guide that will help the teachers better prepare the students for what they'll see on the farm when they come and visit.
0: Elizabeth Schmidt is the executive director for Soviet Island Center. And how about, let's have another song.
5: Absolutely, so we'll hear roots, stems, leaves, flowers, fruits, and seeds, which are the plant parts that children are actually required to learn about in third grade as part of the Next Generation Science Standards.
0: Wonderful.
4: Roots, stems, leaves, flowers, fruits, and seeds. Roots, stems, leaves, flowers, fruits, and seeds. Roots, stems, leaves, flowers, fruits, and seeds. That's six parts. It six parts. Six plant parts that plants and people need.
0: This is the Nonprofit yeah, Hour on X Ray FM. FM. We are talking to the new executive director for Sylvia Island Center, Elizabeth Schmitz, and. Before before the break, we were talking about some of the students that you work with, and well, let's talk a little bit more about your job. What's what 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 do you feel like is your what's the biggest challenge as an executive director for a program like this?
5: We have a couple of interesting and unique challenges. One is just having a place where we can all be to work together. So. Um, We have the luxury of having access to the barn out there at Howell Territorial Park, but it is a rustic facility and and the actual finished office space is pretty small. So um, that's where we, our education staff, are able to work from during the season. But then in the off season, um, having a permanent office space is a challenge, which leads into the ongoing challenge of budgets and fundraising and... um,
0: I would think that would be also a fundamental challenge of your job is that like you clearly like to be outdoors and gardening, but this is also an office, a desk job.
5: Right. Yep. It's uh, it's one of those sacrifices that, you know, I think many people who end up in the field of environmental education, especially or agriculture, perhaps get into the field because they want to be outside and we love our jobs. We spend lots of time outside. It's, it's wonderful experience. And then, um, I think maybe because we're good at what we do and because we have so much passion for what we do, we start getting promoted up the chain and all of a sudden we find ourselves at a desk. And um, yep, that's definitely not my most favorite part of the job. But I think it's really important because now I have the opportunity to use the skills and knowledge that I've gained to help other people do the fun stuff, you know, and, and that's really empowering and it feels good to help empower them as well.
0: Now, I know that you're only a couple months into the job, uh, but have you thought about what you want your legacy to be for, for your position? What do you, how do you want to leave Soviet Island Center uh, different or better than, than how you found it?
5: Well, if I could dream really big, I know that Metro is getting ready to launch its next round of um, park funding. And they have discussed doing a major um, master plan for Howell Territorial Park. And I would love for us to have a big grange kind of setting where we can bring the students inside if it's really, really rainy. Um, Right now, we can't quite do that in the barn space because of code issues. Um, And also a place where we can have cooking demonstrations so that we can really ramp up that connection between what you pull out of the field and how you can actually use it in your home. I think that's a skill that is um, kind of fallen off a lot of people's radars. So to be able to bring in families um, and empower parents to work side by side with their children to learn how to prepare and eat delicious, fresh produce would be a wonderful legacy to to leave.
0: Yeah, it would seem like I mean Portland obviously and has such a burgeoning restaurant scene. And making sure that that is connected to the general population and to younger kids who to teach them those skills is, is Portland's restaurant scene being so big? Does that help your job? Uh, Does that does that affect your job? Do you have chefs that come out there that that help teach? I mean, you're obviously founded by a chef, but how does Portland's restaurant scene play into Sovie Island Center?
5: We do like to work with local chefs to help us with our family farm days. And if you're interested in coming to a family farm day, we would love to have you out there. And all the details are on our website, which is sovieislandcenter.org. Um, so we are so thankful to the chefs who volunteer their time to come out and, and teach young people how to cook. And it's a very valuable part of the partnerships that we have in place. So yeah, yay for Portland's restaurant scene.
0: And 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 uh, just wrapping things up, any other way that people can get involved that you wanna plug before we, we sign off?
5: Sure, yep, there are lots of ways to get involved. We're always looking for volunteers to help with our special events or to come out and teach the youth. Um, and if you want to get involved financially, uh, $14 pays for one student to come out to the farm. So um, a $14 donation in itself goes a long way to helping us achieve our mission. And we would love to see you out at the farm.
0: Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us today. And one more song?
5: Absolutely. Let's hear the garden song um, all about planting the garden.
0: Sounds appropriate.
4: Inch by inch, row by row. Gonna make this
1: garden That's all for this week's Nonprofit Hour. We would like to thank our guests, Kayla Catino and Adam McKinley from Gearcrest Farm, as well as Elizabeth Schmitz from Savi Island Center. This show was made possible with the support of BusinessWorks, specializing in small business accounting needs of all kinds, from payroll to day-to-day bookkeeping and beyond. If your organization or business is interested in underwriting our radio show, please email phil at mediamakingchange.org. The Nonprofit Hour is a production of the Media Institute for Social Change and KXRY Radio, xray.fm. Our host is Phil Bussey, and our producer and editor is Henry Leisha. You can follow us on Facebook or via our Twitter handle, at Nonprofit Hour. Archives of past shows can be found on our SoundCloud page. Questions, comments, or ideas about the show can be sent to nph at mediamakingchange.org. Thanks for tuning in to the Nonprofit Hour on KXRY Radio, x-ray.fm. Join us on Monday mornings at 6 a.m. and Tuesday afternoons at 1. Have a great week.